0: Well, good morning, church. It is a good morning, and it's a good morning for two reasons in particular. One, Jesus Christ is ruling on the throne right now, and secondly, it's a good morning because Dave Calhoun is in the house. So Dave, center uh, center section right there, just wave your hand. I would just encourage you, um, before you leave, make sure you get to Dave, and we're so thankful that the Lord has worked. Let's just take a moment of prayer right now, thanking God for for, for allowing Dave to come today. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, it is a good day when saints, especially those who have been uh, struggling with um, pain and and sickness, um, can be freed from that, Lord, and able to come here. And so, our hearts are filled with gladness today as we see Dave and what an encouragement and example he has been. And all this points us back to your grace, Lord. So, as it's been said, we are praying for all those who um, we're not able to make it and are struggling, and we long for the day when they will be freed from such things and with us again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a story of a church in England, and this uh, church was founded several hundred years ago, and there was a, a courtyard built around the church with a, an archway, an ivy planted, and on the words of the archway were written, "We preach Christ crucified." And so, the early years of the church, that was the message that was preached, Jesus Christ crucified. And as sinners came to the church, they heard the gospel, they heard about Christ crucified, and they left changed. And for saints in the church, their lives were transformed, their Christian growth uh, continued to blossom under the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. But as the years continued to go by, those approaching the church uh, went through the archway, and the ivy had begun to creep up, and now the wording read, We preach Christ. And over the years, the flavoring of the preaching began to change, and now what was heard was, Christ, the moral example, and Christ, the political example, Christ, the socialist, Christ, the psychologist. So depending on the flavor of the day, you would hear a different version of Christ. And as the years continued to go by, The ivy continued to creep up, and the words eventually read, we preach. And that was what happened within the church. Now you would come to this church, and and you would hear all kinds of preaching, preaching on the economic woes, preaching on social woes, preaching on all the woes of the day. But what was gone was the preaching of Christ crucified. Early in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains that he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This message of Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended is what we call the gospel. As some of you know, or or maybe are thinking, well, that sounds great to those who aren't saved. They need to know Christ crucified. But maybe to some degree, we can even start to think, do I really need that? Do I really need to be reminded on a regular basis of Jesus Christ crucified? And the answer to that is yes, In the case of paul and the new testament writers christ crucified is more than just a step on the ladder to get us somewhere christ crucified is the framework through which everything is viewed the fact that god ends the hostility between himself and sinners and is now at peace with them then becomes foundational for the way that we relate to each other so as paul writes to this very troubled church in corinth he writes with the central truth of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected in mind. It's this truth that will enable the Corinthians to work through their many dif- dis- uh, disagreements and differences and the conflicts to preserve the unity that Jesus Christ has given them. It's this truth that will enable us as believers to live in relational harmony with one another despite the many issues that threaten to divide us. What I don't want you to lose sight of today is that relational unity is accomplished and maintained because of Christ's death and resurrection. Don't lose sight of that. It's not because we are so amazing and we have done so much in order to be able to get this and preserve it. No, it's because Jesus is so amazing and, has, and enables us to do this. So over the past uh, weeks and, and perhaps months even, you've seen a number of these relational commitments, these commitments that we believe are important. Well, I believe that This relational commitment to unity is certainly one of the most important. As you well know, I don't have to tell you, if you spend enough time with people, eventually there's going to be some trouble, right? Or anybody live in a trouble-free family where there's no conflict at all? Anybody have that? No, of course not. Eventually, we're going to struggle. We're going to disagree, sometimes even very strongly. And in the midst of that, we respond, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. So with these other commitments, my focus here is not so much on peacemaking as a whole, but why it matters that we should be committed to relational unity, and then what do we do in order to maintain that? Now, as we do this, I don't want this message to sound like you're doing a bunch of things wrong and we need to correct you on what you're doing wrong. Rather, I'd just encourage you, it's it's an encouragement, keep going, keep persevering in your commitments to relational unity. So our text today is going to come from Romans 15, verses 1 to 7. We'll actually be starting back in Romans 14 uh, at verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, you'd like to turn to Romans 14, verse 13 to begin. If you need a Bible, um, just raise your hand and one of our um, great ushers will be happy to, to give you one. So Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. So while you're turning there, I'll give you a little context to catch you up to speed. This church in in Rome was culturally diverse. It included members from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. Diverse backgrounds can be challenging for any group of people, right? Even in a church, it can be very challenging to navigate those relationships. And so these believers in Rome were expressing their Christian liberties, but often not in a grace-filled way. So their secondary differences were becoming primary, and they were threatening the unity of the church. So Paul is writing in order to set them on the pathway of love and to warn against these differences turning into divisions. He knew it wasn't God's plan to have a a separate church for the Jewish Christians and a separate church for the Gentile Christians. Paul wanted to see them achieve the goal that we're going to be looking at in chapter 15, verse 6, that together they would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the same goal that we have today. So, if you have your Bibles now and you're in Romans 13, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word. From verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not, regard, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue for what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You may be seated. Let's pray to that end. Our dear Heavenly Father, what a challenging text of Scripture we come upon, but yet what a gospel-filled, gospel-hopeful passage we find, that it is your desire, Lord, to enable us to maintain the unity that you have created. So we pray, Father, that that will be our goal too, to live in such harmony with one another that we can, with one voice, glorify our God and and Father. Lord, help us with that. Help us as we think about uh, our own responses and our own contributions and our own challenges in the midst of this. Remind us, Father, of the way that we have been shown such extravagant, extravagant grace, and may we extend that to others as well. So please... Bless the proclamation of your word today. May it sink home, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I I don't know a lot about music, admittedly, but I am in tune to some things. I've uh, thought at at times about applying to be on the worship team. Um, I believe my qualifications as leader of the prison singers would make me very uh, appropriate for that. If you didn't know, um, we as the, the prison singers are behind a few bars, always looking for the right key. Anyways, one thing I do know about music is that it's, it's very hard to listen to when the different parts are not in harmony. When, when people aren't in tune with each other, it's very noticeable. I know enough about it to, to see that. So generally, we don't do well at singing parts that like are out of our range or that God hasn't equipped us in. We do better to sing where God has placed us, And So these two chapters in Romans, chapters 14 and 15, really teach us how to maintain unity even when we disagree with each other. So the main points that we want to emphasize today is this, that even in matters of secondary importance where we might disagree, we should never let non-gospel, non-essential, non-sinful matters become barriers to our fellowship. I'll say that again. Even in matters of secondary importance where we might disagree, we should never let non-gospel, non-essential, non-sinful matters become barriers to our fellowship. You've perhaps heard of this motto, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. You see, there's no shortage of matters that we as Christians could uh, disagree on. Public school, homeschooling, should we celebrate holidays, pre-mill, post-mill, all mill ah -mill, Calvinism, Arminianism— Dancing, no dancing, we could go all day talking about things that we could disagree over. Now, as Christians, we have to do something with these differences. And we must do something in order to maintain unity in the midst of those differences. Otherwise, we will end up with fighting in the family. But before we go to the what of relational unity, I want to talk about the why. So, why should we be committed to relational unity? Well, first, relational unity pleases God. Relational unity pleases God. So all of us should be committed to relational unity because it pleases God. Let's look back at the passage we read in Romans and take a look again at verse 6, where Paul says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, the thrust of chapters 14 and 15 is is really headed here that inwardly and outwardly that believers would glorify God, that, that worship is the ultimate goal here. So God is glorified and God is pleased when His people don't divide over matters of secondary importance or where they don't build churches based on personal opinions or preferences. He's glorified when His people take the perspective of Jesus when his people think like Jesus does and take the values and the priorities of Jesus. And the result of this is that we move closer to the Lord and each other as well. So the greatest goal here is not unity. Now, that may seem a little bit strange, but but the greatest goal that we're aiming at is not unity in and of itself. Why? You see, we can be united, but not necessarily glorify God. Lots of groups outside the church are united around a cause, but they're not necessarily glorifying God at that. Even in the context of churches, we could, we could unite, we could form churches based on a lot of different unifying things. We could form a, a cowboy church. We could form a biker church or a farmer church or a, a cooking church. I don't know. You could form any kind of church you wanted, right, based off of personal preferences and, and opinions there. But that's not the greatest thing. So Paul's highest goal is, is not that believers are united in a common, in common cause or even that they're at peace with each other. His greatest priority is that they glorify God. And when they glorify God, the outworkings of that will be that unity and it will be that, that peace with each other. Now, I believe that this is a challenge that we all have. In other words, it's easy for us to commit to relational unity for the sake of ourselves because it's easier for us, is there anybody here that enjoys being at odds with someone else? I didn't think so. If you are, we need to talk. <laughs> but it's, it's not fun. It, it is not fun at all. And, and the danger is that we try to achieve relational unity at the expense of, of glorifying God. So by whatever means works, without necessarily trying to glorify God. So can I just give you an example of this? let's just say we had a life group, and we had two members of the life group, and they were at odds about something, you know, pick your topic. And, and so, they responded in this way. Instead of trying to work it out, they, just, they said, well, I'm going to go to a different service than that other person's at. They go to second service, I'll go to first service. If I see them coming in the south door, I'll go out the north door. And so, they have, quote, accomplished relational peace because they're not like fighting anymore, but have they actually? And have they actually glorified God in that process? No, of course not. So the question that you may be asking is, how then do I glorify God in the midst of differences, even very strong differences with others? And that is a great question. I want to put that off more toward the end, but it's a wonderful question. But first, let me ask another question. Um, what does a lack of relational unity say about God? What do you think that says about God in the church? Well, I believe it sends a message that the children in God's family really aren't that different from those outside of God's family, at least from all, uh, all appearances. So using the, the music imagery, if we go back to that, it, we could say it sounds a lot like a song where where some are just singing like way out of tune, or maybe even a completely different song. Like it's noticeable. It's like, whoa, that's, that's not right. We can't keep that up. It won't sound too good. And, and that's what would end up happening, and that's what ends up happening if we are not committed to relational unity. It makes the, the director look bad, and it sounds plain awful. And that's certainly not the message we want to send. So relational unity pleases God. But secondly, relational unity points the watching world to the gospel. Relational unity points the watching world to the gospel. So a second reason why we should be committed to relational unity is because it points the watching world to the gospel. We began this morning with the reminder of Jesus Christ crucified, what he has done. It's God who has initiated this peace with us. Just think of what Paul said back in Romans 5, for example. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And a few verses later, he points out, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were His enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation." So, notice some things in that. It's God who has initiated that reconciliation. It's God who has initiated that peace with us. See, we were at odds with God because of our sin. So what did God do? He did what we call the gospel, the good news. Through the death of Jesus, we can be declared righteous, brought back into a right relationship with him, and are now beloved children in his family. So the gospel message is about how God has obtained a right relationship with sinners, not about how sinners can earn it, or achieve a right relationship with God. So, why does this relational unity matter to God? Because Jesus died to achieve it. If God cares enough that his son would die to accomplish and achieve relational unity, but his people don't care enough about it to seek to maintain it, then what does that say about God? So a reason the gospel is so glorious is because God creates unity, and also by God's power, he enables us to maintain this unity. We really see this played out in a passage like John 17. In John 17, this is where Jesus is praying for his people, and and unity is really a key theme in his prayer here. In verse 11, for example, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So here Jesus is pointing us to this perfect, perfect unity in the Trinity. How one is the triune God? Well, Jesus is saying they are perfectly aligned, that the Trinity is perfectly united. There's no division. There's no disagreements. There's nothing that would separate or divide that relationship. And he's praying that his people would have that unity and, and that harmony and that oneness as well. In verses 21 and tw- to 23, in the same chapter in John 17, Jesus continues to pray for the oneness of his people. He says in verse 21, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me, and they they may be perfectly one, get this, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So did you catch the result of that relational unity? The oneness that that Jesus is praying for there, so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe. That's that's the workings of this relational unity. So relational unity is created in God's people because the triune God has perfect unity, and as God's people live together in relational unity, it points the watching world to the power of God and the good news of the gospel. We see this in another passage, such as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13-16, to 16, where Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus has made peace. He's reconciled us to the Father, and as well, he's reconciled both Jew and Gentile with each other through his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection. So what's this mean? What it means is the good news for you and me is that we don't have to figure out how to create relational unity. I don't think we could do that, even if we wanted to. I don't think we could figure it out. We've been watching the world, and for how many thousands of years, they have not been able to do it. We're not going to do any better. The good news is we are simply called to maintain the unity that Jesus has created. How? Well, the answer is the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus enables us never to let non-gospel, non-essential, non-sinful matters become barriers to our fellowship. Even going back to, to our chapter here in Romans 15, we have these gospel truths that continue to encourage us. How is it that we can bear with the failings of the weak? And not please ourselves? How is it that we can please each other for the purpose of building others up instead of pleasing ourselves? By our own strength? By our own willpower? No. The answer is found in Christ in his work. Take a look at verse 3 right there. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We have a wonderful gospel truth answer. Jesus willingly stood in the place of sinners. He became a reproach so that we could go free. He willingly took our shame and our guilt. He willingly removed that and gave us his righteousness. And Jesus demonstrates his love for us by not pleasing ourselves, by not pleasing himself. His pattern of self-denial then is one that we are to follow. So by following Christ's pattern of self-denial, the result is relational unity and God being glorified. Again, I don't have to tell you how hard and tiring it is to try and deny yourself, to strive for relational unity. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. So, Paul's prayer in verse 5 is that God, the God of endurance and encouragement, will grant this relational unity. So, what a wonderful truth right there. I mean, it's certainly true that we are to strive for relational harmony, relational oneness, relational unity. There's a component that we strive for, but we can't do this apart from God. It's a gift of God. Notice how he says that God will grant. So, it's not a a level of accomplishment that we obtain because we're gifted enough. No, this is a, a blessing of God, something He grants. And Paul means that truth to encourage us, to motivate us, to continue to maintain our efforts. So I hope that this will encourage you to keep seeking to maintain gospel uh, unity so we can keep working at it without becoming discouraged because, again, it's, it's through our efforts that God grants it. There's no way that we could achieve it if it was up to us alone. So being committed to relational unity is a big way in which we can point the credit back to God for what He has done. So I can be in good relationship with my brothers and sisters who think differently, believe differently, and act differently on secondary issues because of what God has done for me. And guess what? I want to show that to the world. When they see family members living in right relationship with one another, what does that do? leads them to ask the question, how is that possible, which points us all back to God and he gets the credit. So God makes that unity possible. A third reason why this relational unity matters or why we should care about it is that a a commitment to relational unity will fuel your joy. A commitment to relational unity will fuel your joy. I don't know too many people who want to be discouraged or depressed because of conflicts and disagreements. Anybody like to be discouraged or depressed? No one? Okay, no takers so far. Well, that's good. Right, so joy and unity really go hand in hand. Uh, The greater our unity grows, then the greater our joy is fueled. Let's look at a couple passages that talk about this relationship between unity and joy. So one of those is in Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. And so Paul here in the context of Philippians is addressing some challenges or or some things that will steal the church's joy, and these will steal our joy as well. Listen to what he says. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind." So, Paul's joy is completed when these Christians are united in love and in mind. And the same is true with us. Our joy is completed as we're united in love and in mind. The greater the relational unity that we pursue, the greater our joy will be. Another passage that also highlights this is Colossians 3, uh, verses 12 to 14, where Paul says, "'Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved,' Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So, look at the joy that marks our lives when these qualities are taking place. Is there anyone here who wouldn't want to be part of a community that's marked by compassion? or or kindness, or humility, or meekness, or forgiveness. Anybody not want to be a part of that community? Well, of course not. We all want to be part of that kind of community, community, right? Because we know that our joy is being fueled in that kind of community right there. So if that's our culture, just imagine what that will do to our joy. So a commitment to relational unity will fuel your joy, I know from personal experience that if I have a rift with anybody, it feels like a million-pound weight is lifted when that gets cleared up, right? There's just this heaviness, this weight that settles over us, and it's like, oh, I just want to get that addressed. And, th- and then when it is, it's, it's like you feel like you could float. So that's what that relational unity uh, does in terms of our joy. So now that we've heard the why of relational unity, I want to talk a little bit about maybe the content of it, the what. Like, what's involved with that? And I want to do this really in two components right here. Uh, First, thinking about it from the elders, and then secondly, thinking about it from the congregation. So, in terms of um, elders, what does this mean for us in in modeling or being committed to this relational unity? Well, if we turn back to Romans 14 and you take a look at verse… 19, there's a key verb right there. If you notice that, it says pursue. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. So, one of the key themes for us as elders is to pursue peace and mutual unity. And this word pursuit is not merely to wish for it or to talk about it, but instead to habitually track it down and make every effort to go after it. So, Paul here has in in mind the, the building up of the church as a whole, as he's talking about Romans 14. So, as elders, we want to have the interests of the church as a whole as our top priority so that the church can be built up. So, what then does it look like for us as elders to pursue peace for the building up of the church? Well, I believe that elders must pursue relational unity with a loving attitude and a concern for the flock that God has entrusted them with, and to demonstrate this by willingly going to pursue the sheep. And the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14 of the lost sheep, I think is a great model for us as elders. Here uh, in the context of Matthew, which is slightly different than it's used in the context of Luke, where the story is also told, Jesus has in mind a pastoral concern. So here in this context, it's the sheep going astray rather than the sheep who was lost. So the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, is to pursue the wandering sheep and to seek to restore him. So just as Ezekiel 34 warns the false shepherds of Israel not to desert God's people, So here, too, Jesus is warning the elders of the church to care for the flock, to remain vigilant, ready to pursue any member who begins to wander. And there's a great joy when this wandering sheep is restored and returned to the rest of the flock. So, fellow elders and all those who would lead here at Newcastle, pursuit is one of the main verbs that should describe our commitment to relational unity. In the case of a shepherd, what rock... Is too big for them to climb over. What river is too deep for them to swim across? What mud is too ewy for them to wade through? But even more as spiritual shepherds. So pursuing unity among ourselves and and among members is what we want to be known for. So what's this look like? I mean, practically, what does that look like? A pursuit toward relational unity? Well, it includes a, a willingness to go and talk to people who are struggling relationally. With either with us or with others. A willingness not to, let, not to wait for them to come, but to be intentional about going to them. A willingness to get in the mud of relational messes with people because of our love for them. A willingness to, to get our hands bit at times, but willing to, be, to have that done because of our love for them. I believe this pursuit is marked by several important characteristics. So one of these is to see God's people as God sees them. So as elders, we can model and promote relational unity well when we see God's people as God does. We see them as made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, Colossians 3.12. As a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, 1 Peter 2.9. As people who have been lavished with all wisdom and understanding, Ephesians 1.18. Who are filled with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, and are competent to instruct one another and to judge the things of this life, Romans 15.14. So when we as elders and leaders remember that descriptive phrases apply to all the saints, not just ordained leaders, we will be more inclined to humbly uh, welcome questions, suggestions, and even correction from anyone in whom God's Spirit dwells. The second characteristic of pursuit that's critical for us as elders is to confess sin, quickness, whether small or great. So when people confront an elder with a mistake or sin that's embarrassing or seems insignificant, natural defensiveness can creep in and maybe uh, this um, human tendency of not wanting to, you know address it or or feeling insignificant or insecure, it, it can even shift the focus to the other person. What could be going on in their hearts that they would even ask this of me? So the type of, and that type of response will either provoke a debate or it will stifle discussion, both of which will really send the message that it's just a waste of time to even approach that person. Therefore, a wise elder, a wise leader will patiently listen to complaints, Pray for God's wisdom in discerning any truth in them, if it's even only a grain. And then model humility by sincerely confessing that wrong and thanking the other brother or sister for being willing to talk to them about it. So I believe that uh, we as elders would do well to see, uh, to, to ask how the church thinks we are doing in these areas. As a church, what are you seeing? How well do you think we are remodeling relational unity? How easy is it for you to approach us with any concerns or questions or to seek help for troubles? Speaking for myself, I personally would welcome feedback, uh, suggestions. What strengths do you see? What weaknesses do you see? Where do I need to change? You're free to do that at any time. You can send a letter. You can call me. You can come by my office. You can talk to me. And I pray that all of us as elders would would also have that openness to do that. So that's um, a focus on us as elders are the importance of of what we are to do in terms of relational commitment. But what about for the congregation at large? What does it look like for all of us to seek to maintain this relational unity? Well, there's some two key attitudes that are in place, uh, and then we'll get into some specific practices. So the first key attitude is love. We saw that earlier and back in Colossians 3 where we referenced that. In verse 14, he mentions love binding everything together in perfect harmony. So here, Paul views love as like this outer garment, this coat that you put on, that really keeps all of those other qualities in the right place. Without love, none of those other characteristics would be right. So when there is love, that leads to relational harmony and unity. If we remember 1 Corinthians 13.5, love doesn't what? It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So one of the quickest ways to destroy relationships, uh, whether that's in a church or, or other contexts, is to, to keep a record of wrongs. So I would encourage all of us to make it a practice to have a short list. I'm not trying to impose anything unbiblical on you, but, but what if you have like a seven-day rule? If in seven days... If there's something someone has done to me that I haven't been willing to address, I'm just going to agree to drop it. So I've got seven days to to deal with it in the right biblical way. You know, whatever that is, whatever that number is, I mean, Scripture clearly teaches us that we are to resolve it quickly. And the quicker we do that, the shorter we keep that list, the better it will help us in relational unity. So if love is one characteristic, a second key attitude would be found in James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. So here in James, he says, "'Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you see there the danger of selfish ambition, uh, of jealousy there. You see the discord and the disunity that come from that. So if we are to maintain this relational unity, that that involves being active and fighting against those sins in our life. It's having that personal commitment to go after those sins. So as I mentioned in the beginning, the central truth of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected will enable us to work through conflict and disagreements and to preserve the unity that Jesus Christ has given us. So again, in light of Christ and His work, even in matters of secondary importance where we might disagree, we should never let non-gospel, non-essential, non-sinful matters become barriers to our fellowship. So I'd like to end with reading to you a peacemaking pledge that I believe would be really important for all of us to follow. It's there. uh, If you grabbed a bulletin, it's right there. So I'm going to, to read through that. And it begins with, as people reconciled to God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe that we are called to respond in conflict, to conflict in a way that's remarkably different from the way the world deals with conflict. We believe that conflict provides opportunities to glorify God, serve other people, and to grow to be like Christ. Therefore, in response to God's love and in reliance on his grace, we commit ourselves to respond to conflict according to the following principles: glorify God, Instead of focusing on our own desires or dwelling on what others may do, we, may, we will seek to please and honor God by depending on His wisdom, power, and love, by faithfully obeying His commands, and by seeking to maintain a loving, merciful, and forgiving attitude. Second, get the log out of our own eye. Instead of attacking others or dwelling on their wrongs, we will take responsibility for our own contribution to conflicts, confessing our sins, asking God to change us, Uh, whether that's attitude or habits that lead to conflict, and seeking to repair any harm that we caused. Third, gently restore. Instead of pretending that conflict doesn't exist or talking about others behind their backs, we will choose to overlook minor offenses or we will talk directly and graciously with those whose offenses seem too serious to overlook. When conflict with another Christian cannot be resolved in private, we will ask others in the body of Christ to help us settle the matter in a biblical manner. And then fourth, go and be reconciled. Instead of accepting premature compromise or allowing relationships to wither, we will actively pursue genuine peace and reconciliation, forgiving others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, and seeking just and mutually beneficial solutions to our differences. By God's grace, we will apply these principles as a matter of stewardship, realizing that conflict is is an assignment, not an accident, we will remember that in success, in God's eyes, is not a matter of specific results, but of faithful, dependent obedience. And we will pray that our service as peacemakers brings praise to our Lord and leads others to know his infinite love. Let's pray to that end. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful that you, Lord Jesus, have lived that sinless and holy life for us, that you, were, that you willingly went, went to the cross. To suffer that death for us and that you were resurrected and have arisen and are now ruling on the right hand of God, interceding with us. And by virtue of your atoning work, we have this right standing with God. We've also been placed into a family where we are called to maintain right relationships with each other. So, Lord, we are desperately praying for your grace. Lord, please grant us that relational harmony with one another. May we put to death any sinful practices or attitudes or contributions. May we seek your grace and seek your help to work toward that relational unity. Lord, we want to glorify you. May you be glorified through our lives and in the life of this church so that all may see how great of a God you truly are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.